Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 166, Looking Back on Independence, part one. First, as always, I want to thank our newest patrons, Ian McDowell and Blagovest Tichif, as well as returning patron Sky O'Donnell. I also want to thank Alice Alicia, Alice, yeah, Alicia, I think, and Bogdan for the very nice email and the generous donation they made. Thank you both, and thanks to all of you. Now, so we've wrapped up season seven, and so now I want to do the usual two podcast episodes recapping everything from the season before doing a special episode I'm working on now about Muslims in Bulgaria based on a book I got. And so that'll kind of come next month. And then I think after that, we'll start season eight. So just to give you an idea where we are and what's coming up. Now for the recap. The season began with a semi-independent Bulgaria and Eastern Romalia being established by the Treaty of Berlin. At this point, Bulgaria's two main goals were drafting a constitution and finding a prince, all on a very short timeline because the great powers wanted to minimize the amount of time Russia administered Bulgaria as a way to minimize Russian influence there. But of course, for Bulgaria, it meant they had to do two of the most important things for the remaining history of the country until today on a dramatically accelerated timeline. But that's, I think, a little typical. You know, the great powers do what, whatever suits them and to hell with anyone else. Anyways, during those early months, some Bulgarians were already using violence to achieve their aims. During the Kresno Rozlog uprising in Macedonia, some of the kind of uprising forces held out for months, but ultimately the Ottoman army regained control there and enacted their usual bloody reprisals. Meanwhile, Bulgaria's constitutional assembly met. The challenge was that few in the assembly had really relevant experience in devising a system of government. I mean, understandably. Many even wanted to just dissolve the assembly and instead do something like join Austria-Hungary. But eventually, the members divided into conservative and liberal factions, with the latter representing wealthier landowners who wanted a stronger monarch, and the former being more focused on Western ideas and democratic and liberal ideals. Another challenge was that the government was simultaneously trying to work out a form of government best suited for its internal development, as well as one best suited to gain the territory it desired, and these two goals were often at odds. Still, ultimately the Turnival Constitution was accepted by the Assembly. However, it was written so quickly that in many ways it contained the seeds of its own destruction and its many problems. In particular, that it gave the prince extensive but still constitutionally limited powers, as well as a general clear lack of checks and balances. Still, that now left finding a prince as the next major task for Bulgaria. Alexander of Battenberg was the clear frontrunner, as he had ties to Russia, but wasn't from any of the royal families of any of the European great powers. He had even fought in the recent Russo-Turkish War. On the negative side, he was only 21 years old and had no experience in politics or governance. 
But when he toured European capitals, he quickly found out that, well, basically every power seemed to want something very different and usually contradictory from Bulgaria. Still, he soon arrived in Bulgaria and was sworn in as the country's first monarch in nearly five centuries. Battenberg soon appointed a conservative caretaker government, despite the liberals having more support. From the beginning, Battenberg was very frustrated by the Turnival Constitution because he felt it didn't give him enough power, and the conservatives agreed, thus him making them, you know, his government. From the start, another problem was that some Russian officials in Sofia supported the liberals, while others backed the conservatives. Obviously, this was frustrating for Battenberg, who was even angrier when he learned that the Russians were spying on him and considered him to be a German agent. So, things were off to a bad start. To make matters even more difficult, martial law was imposed in many regions to handle the brigandage that was rampant in Bulgaria at the time. Bulgaria was also obligated to finance many expensive rail projects that the great powers wanted, despite the fact that it was a brand new country that hardly had, you know, was hardly flush with cash and had a bunch to throw around. But again, the great powers demand what they demand and tend to get what they want, regardless of the outcomes for the people on the ground. Then, Bulgaria held its first elections. Although the conservatives in power tried hard to manipulate the vote to their advantage, a process that will soon become standard in all Bulgarian elections, they still won fewer than 18% of seats. So, as a result, Buttenberg faced a national assembly which was determined to reduce his power. Meanwhile, in eastern Rumelia, politics were far more amicable although paramilitary gymnastic societies were forming in preparation for potentially fighting for independence from the Ottomans. In Sofia, the liberals and conservatives were soon at each other's throats, while Battenberg described the entire National Assembly as basically a bunch of lunatics. Soon, the Assembly forced the conservative government to step down, leading Battenberg to propose a coalition government. But once difficulties arose, he dissolved the Assembly. Bulgaria's first democratically elected body had functioned for just over one month. The liberals were furious at this, but Alexander wanted the constitution amended to increase his powers and was willing to make enemies to do that. Unfortunately for him, the Russian Tsar opposed this, wanting Battenberg to stick to the constitution and basically not rock the boat. Accepting defeat for now, the prince finally appointed a liberal government under Dragan Tsankov. Soon, a new issue came to the forefront, the army. Bodenberg wanted a Prussian-style force, while the Russians wanted the army to be more like theirs. Bodenberg tried to import German officers, but the Russians who ran the Ministry of War rejected all of them. Finally, a compromise was reached, but those underlying tensions and issues remained. Meanwhile, the Tsankov government was struggling to get very much done under the difficult financial and political circumstances the great powers had placed him in. Over time, relations between Battenberg and the liberals deteriorated yet further, with Stefan Stambulov accusing the prime minister, the prince rather, of violating the constitution by asking to be addressed by a slightly different title than the one in the constitution. Basically, soon, a whole series of scandals hit the Tsankov government, and it was ultimately dismissed by Battenberg. The prince then appointed the fiery Petko Karavelov as prime minister. His position as head of the National Assembly was then taken by the young firebrand Stefan Stambulov. 
At this point, the liberals proposed a series of constitutional amendments to reduce the power of the prince, further worsening relations between them. Then, Tsar Alexander II was assassinated, leaving Battenberg without any allies in the Russian court, as the new Tsar Alexander III detested Battenberg and was far more stubborn regarding how he felt Bulgaria should be run. In particular, encouraged by the conservatives, the new Tsar associated the liberals with the nihilists who, fun coincidence, had just murdered his father. So, yeah, not a fan of the liberals, and obviously with the liberals having much more support in Bulgaria, that's going to create problems. Most critically for Battenberg, the new Tsar would not support him in his goal to amend or get rid of the Turnival Constitution. Yet, when Battenberg returned from the Tsar's funeral, he found the Russian Minister of War amenable to removing the Constitution. Again, you know, when it comes to Russian diplomacy in Bulgaria at this time, you know, the left hand has no idea what the right hand is doing, just constantly. So, with this backing, planning began immediately, and 11 days later, the prince dismissed the National Assembly and the Liberal government before giving himself special powers and announcing a grand National Assembly which would decide on constitutional changes. The Liberals immediately denounced this as basically a coup, while Russia was completely unsure of how to respond before ultimately deciding to back Battenberg for now. The prince's decision was basically to ask for forgiveness rather than permission, and it seemed for now that that had worked. He now declared that he intended to rule as an absolute monarch for seven years and to reduce the legislature to a tiny body representing just the wealthy landowners that basically made up the base of the conservative party that backed Battenberg anyways. Now, all the limitations of the Turnival Constitution were coming to the forefront, as the liberals had very little recourse as Battenberg imposed martial law. The elections for the Grand National Assembly held under these conditions were far from fair, basically guaranteeing the Conservatives a majority. The Assembly quickly approved everything the Prince had asked it to do, and literally I think it was hours, and many prominent liberals fled to Eastern Rumelia to escape imprisonment, bringing Sofia's more combative style of politics to Plovdiv as a kind of unintended byproduct. However, Far from triumphant despite all these ostensible successes, Battenberg was now stuck between a Russian government without consistent policies and a Bulgarian public that didn't really support what he was doing. And then there's the conservatives he had brought along for the whole thing. One particular area of conflict was, again, the Bulgarian army, in which all the higher ranks were exclusively reserved for Russians. Throughout the country, many Bulgarian officials were gradually becoming frustrated with the paternalistic style of their Russian colleagues and the reality that these kinds of caps meant that their careers had a glass ceiling, right? There was only so much they could, uh, they could advance. But that was only one of the many ways in which the alliance in favor of the prince's coup quickly began to unravel. The Russians tried to get the liberal Dragan Tsankov to participate in the new government, angering the conservatives, and Tsankov was ultimately put under house arrest as a part of a larger crackdown anyways. And so, to summarize, by now, everybody is mad at everybody else, but especially the Russians. I think that's a, a good summary of Bulgarian politics in general at this time. But Battenberg still needed Russian support, so he went to St. Petersburg to ask for some Russian officials in Sofia to be replaced. Instead, he was sent a hardline pan-Slav and anti-German, Sobolev, 
and Colbars to act as Minister President and Minister of War. So, yeah, some people were replaced, but hardly by the people that, uh, that the prince wanted. Unsurprisingly, this new government quickly began to flounder. In particular, the question of whether to focus on building the economically vital Vienna to Constantinople Railroad or the rather useless but Russian-backed Danube Railroad, with everyone getting angry at everyone else without much progress being made. To make matters worse, the gendarmes, uh, gendarmes, if you want to say it that way, led by Russians, which had basically replaced the police during martial law, were not treating local Bulgarians very well and were creating their own series of problems. Now, despite all of this, the conservatives won the 1882 elections, largely because of vote manipulation and many of the most prominent liberals still being in exile. Despite this, though, tensions only increased to the point that the prince had to choose between the conservatives or the Russians in his cabinet. He chose the Russians, leading the conservatives to all leave the cabinet and basically leaving the Russians in complete control of the government, where they acted like colonial governors of a Russian province. Things got so bad that the prince finally decided to give in and push for Sobolev and Kalbars to leave and to reinstate the Turnival Constitution and form a liberal conservative coalition government. Basically, he accepted defeat. However, when he traveled to St. Petersburg to arrange this, he found that the Russians blamed him personally for all of these problems and wanted him removed, thinking that as soon as Battenberg was gone, everything would just be hunky-dory and fall into place. Ultimately, still, Sobolev and Kalbars were removed, but new officials were sent, as usual, not the ones the prince wanted, and problems continued. Finally, though, an agreement to work with both political parties and restore the Turnival Constitution was struck. Though the liberals held most of the power at this point because kind of everyone needed them and everyone was angry at the Russians, who were at this point desperately trying to find a way to maintain some power as they basically burned every bridge to every possible political power in Bulgaria. Using the fact that the Russians were so desperate to find some allies, a trap for them was laid. And basically, the constitution was restored so suddenly and without the knowledge of the Russians, and as a result, they couldn't do anything to stop it. As a result, the Tsar was now even more furious at Battenberg than before. Again, as usual, he just blamed Battenberg for everything, whether or not Battenberg had any role in what happened. The new coalition government decided to pardon many of the people that had been involved in the quote-unquote coup, and ultimately, the Tsankov-led liberals made too many compromises with the conservatives, which led to them splitting away from the more radical wing of the liberals led by Karavelov and Stambolov. That more radical breakaway group then went on to win the 1884 elections. Soon, Tsankov resigned and Karavelov became prime minister again, while Stambolov was again head of the National Assembly. This new government raised taxes and began putting in place the foundations of a modern capitalist economy. In general, though, things finally stabilized a bit at this time, allowing Sofia to finally shift its focus towards unification with Eastern Rumelia, as it was no longer just jolting from crisis to crisis. Meanwhile, Battenberg was looking for ways to mend relations with Russia, while Russia was looking for ways to depose him. 
At this point in Eastern Rumelia, a new revolutionary organization decided that the best way to achieve unification was a coup rather than a general uprising, even meeting with the prince to discuss these plans. However, they still ended up basically planning an uprising without the prince's knowledge. Pro-unification demonstrations began and rebel groups soon proclaimed unification throughout Eastern Rumelia. The prince now faced a dilemma. Support unification and poison relations with Russia even further, or don't support it and poison relations with the Bulgarian people. Soon, Eastern Rumelia was fully under the control of pro-unification forces who moved soldiers to the Ottoman border anticipating a possible intervention. Ultimately, Battenberg and the liberal government all decided to support this sudden move for unification despite no one really being ready for it. The Bulgarian army was mobilized and unification was officially proclaimed. Sofia reassured the Ottomans that they would remain loyal and as a kind of way to discourage the Ottomans from getting militarily involved. Unsurprisingly, I feel like in this season, like I'm just constantly saying the Tsar was furious, but the Tsar was furious. Although Russian officials on the ground had supported and opposed unification in roughly equal measure, as usual, again, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. But now Russia was getting its policy all under one roof and decided to withdraw all of the Russian officers and officials in Bulgaria, leaving the country very militarily vulnerable. Now, the Tsar assumed that Bulgaria would basically crumble to pieces without all of his Russian officials, but was very much mistaken. Now, Battenberg had full and complete control over the army, and many volunteers signed up, hoping to help throw off Ottoman control for good. However, instead, Russia, Germany, and Austria-Hungary met and agreed that unification should be opposed, and that basically everything should return to the status quo. Greece, for its part, felt that it had claims on Eastern Rumelia, and Serbia was just generally worried about Bulgaria becoming too powerful. Now, Bulgaria had thought that the great powers and its neighbors alike would support unification, but was very much mistaken, with only Britain and Romania really supporting it. Serbia went so far as to sign a secret deal with Austria-Hungary and went on to use that kind of reassurance to demand territorial compensation from Bulgaria. Many Serbs were excited and believed, just as many Bulgarians did, that they were about to fight the Ottomans and basically take over Macedonia together. However, King Milan of Serbia had different ideas, shocking his country by declaring war on Bulgaria. He aimed to annex a large chunk of the country, occupy the rest, move the Bulgarian capital to Turnovo, and basically give himself a nice puppet state for a neighbor. On paper, the Serbian army outmatched and outclassed the Bulgarians in numbers, experience, equipment, and not to mention the fact that the majority of Bulgarian forces were now at the wrong end of the country. However, Milan thought this war would be a cakewalk and so didn't really prepare for it very much. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Anyways, the prince rushed to the front lines to lead the soldiers. Remember, he was a military officer, so this was his thing. Taking a risk by assuming the Ottomans wouldn't attack, soldiers were rushed to the Serbian borders, with locals helping and cheering them on all along the way. The few soldiers the Serbs met initially put up a tenacious defense, despite being outnumbered roughly 7 to 1. They even managed to launch some local counterattacks. 
Still, the Serbs made steady progress and threatened nearby Sofia. However, while the Serbs were held off, defensive positions were prepared at Slivnica, just 22 kilometers from Sofia. Soon, Bulgarian volunteers defending Vidin were also put under siege. But Slivnica held, despite being threatened by Serbian forces that were potentially outflanking the defenses. At this moment, just five days into the war, events were perched on a knife's edge. But the Bulgarians held as the Serbs took huge losses attacking their positions at Slivnica. The next day, the Serbs began a fighting withdrawal. While the siege of Vidin continued, the Serbs were soon back at their own border in the central part of the front. The great powers now requested peace talks, and the Serbian parliament itself asked for a truce. But, well, the Bulgarians refused. Soon, the Bulgarians took Pirot in Serbia and were poised to move on the much more important city of Nish. The Serbs at this point were frantically calling up reserves and working to defend Belgrade. However, at this moment, the Austro-Hungarians intervened, threatening Bulgaria with war if they continued advancing into Serbia. Thus, Bulgaria was basically forced to agree to a truce. The Serbs mounted one final attack on Vidin after the truce, basically to improve their position, but this also failed. The entire war had lasted about two weeks, but somehow Bulgaria was triumphant while Serbia was utterly shamed, both, both for basically the surprise attack and for how they performed. Still, Bulgarian-Russian relations were at their lowest point ever and Sofia was very diplomatically isolated, which made it very difficult to take advantage of this unexpected military victory. But Prince Battenberg himself enjoyed a massive surge in popularity after, well, obviously his support had declined during the coup period, but now he was a, a hero who defended the country and, you know, led from the battlefield. Well, despite this military victory and all these events, most of the great powers were still committed to restoring the status quo, that is, undoing unification with Eastern Rumelia. But fortunately, London backed the Bulgarians and rejected this. So negotiations over how unification would work and what the outcome of the war would be were basically left to Serbia, Bulgaria, and the Ottomans. Talks dragged on as Bulgaria worried that Serbia was using the time, well, basically Serbia kept delaying, to prepare for a renewed offensive and to resume the war. Bulgaria threatened to resume the war themselves if the Serbs didn't agree to make some concessions, leading the great powers to basically force the Serbs to finally go to the table and come up with an agreement. Both sides ultimately withdrew to their pre-war boundaries. It was decided that unification would be limited to a personal union under Battenberg, the same way Romania had initially been unified, and the Ottomans basically got to annex a small bit of Bulgarian territory. Bulgarian demands for war reparations in Serbia were blocked by all the great powers. Indeed, the great powers all prevented Bulgaria from asking for much of anything from Serbia. So, in negotiations, it felt as if Bulgaria hadn't just won a war. So, the ultimate peace agreement basically just returned everything to the status quo antebellum. At least the Ottomans did ultimately decide to recognize full unification, even if many of the great powers, like most importantly Russia, still did not. So, coming out of the war, Bulgaria had gained no territory, in fact it had lost some to the Ottomans, 
and had no financial compensation to help, well, offset the fact that wars are very expensive and also unifying with another state and joining yourselves is also extremely expensive. So Bulgaria ended up in a pretty bad situation. All it had really earned was the animosity of its neighbor. Now, Battenberg set about wasting all the political capital and all the goodwill he had just amassed. Administering Eastern Romalia from Sofia in a very heavy-handed way, emphasizing personal loyalty to him as the main reason anyone should be promoted in the army, and in the process ignoring many heroes of the recent war, just burning a lot of bridges. The economic costs of the war were such that Bulgaria, as I kind of alluded to, was in a dire financial situation, and taxes had to be increased yet again, putting yet more strain on the population. As a result of all this, a new anti-Battenberg coalition began to form from pro-Russian political and military officials. Soon, a Russian officer led some 30 men to invade Bulgarian shores in an attempt to kidnap the prince and kick off a rebellion but they were all captured. Soon, elections for a unified National Assembly were held with the usual violence and voter intimidation. The liberals under Karavelov retained power. And soon, a number of controversies regarding unification plagued the National Assembly. More and more people blamed Prince Battenberg for all the problems facing the country, you know, taking a page out of Russia's book, and at this moment, the Russian-backed coup against him was put into place. The prince was suddenly awoken in the middle of the night to find armed men holding abdication papers. Battenberg was forced to sign and then rushed to the Danube and from there to Germany. A new provisional government was formed. Karavelf was put under house arrest. However, the coup plotters hadn't really planned much for what they would do once the prince was actually gone. And, well... Basically, they had, just like the Russians, assumed that once the prince was gone, everything would be just fine because obviously he was a source of all problems in Bulgaria. And, well, once the prince was gone, that didn't happen, and things quickly began to turn south for them. Stefan Stambulov quickly picked up the mantle as the main opposition to the coup, despite the fact that he had opposed the prince in many cases in the past. Soon, many soldiers were refusing to swear allegiance to the new government, and demonstrations against it spread throughout Bulgaria. Stambulov framed the choice as one between independence and Russian vassalage. Soon, Stambulov proclaimed that those who had deposed the prince were traitors, taking control of Turnovo and informing the government that it had 24 hours to stand down. Only two out of 12 army regiments were loyal to the coup plotters, so they weren't in a great position. Once it was clear that the army and the population were against them and that Russia was not going to intervene materially on their behalf, the conspirators basically could see the writing on the wall. They actually asked to form a coalition government, though the main plotter still fled to Russia. Karavelov agreed and headed this new coalition government and asked Stambulov to join, but Stambulov ardently refused to work with the coup plotters. So that coalition government was quickly dissolved once it was clear that they couldn't get the support they needed. Now a regency was formed with Stambulov at its head. It quickly telegrammed Battenberg asking him to return, which he did immediately. While the Russians had accepted that the coup was a failure, they had never imagined that the prince might actually return, and so his doing so caught them completely off guard. Yet, 
The prince was met by Russian officials when he arrived on Bulgarian shores, leading him to believe that the Tsar was supporting him returning. Thus, Battenberg, at this moment, without asking anyone, sent a telegram to the Tsar, saying that basically he was his humble servant, and more or less implying that he would give up the crown if Russia ever demanded it. When, basically with that idiotic move, he ensured the end of his reign. The Tsar immediately wrote back saying, yes, you should renounce your throne. And Stambolov, who had fought so hard to get the prince back on the throne, was enraged by this idiocy and that all the, basically all the work he had put into getting him there was now all for nothing and there was nothing he could do about it. Stambolov tried to persuade Prince Battenberg to stay, but, well, the prince was no fool. He could see he had virtually no support, and so he abdicated once again, leaving Stambolov at the head of a regency council. In basically now, Stambolov had to find the country a new prince. And with that, I'll wrap up the first of this month's new wrap-up episodes. Next time, we'll begin with that search for a new prince and cover the rest of the season up to the death of Stefan Stambolov. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, you can find more information on the website via the link in the description. Thank you all, and I'll see you in the next one.